Second Captains on RTE Radio 1. Sponsored by Audi Ireland. Future is an attitude. You don't understand. I could have had class. I could have been a contender. I could have been somebody. So he's almost like having a second captain in the team. Second captain, first captain, whatever. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Second Captain Saturday, and thank you for the phenomenal reaction we had to last week's episode. It's all my David here, as always, with Kieran Murphy. Hey, Murph. Hey, on. How's it going? I know what you're thinking at home. How exactly do you follow a guest like Mick Lynch? Well, I'll tell you how. By chatting to someone widely regarded as one of the great Irish actors and one of the leading actors in British theatre and beyond in the last 30 years. She's worked everywhere from the Abbey to the West End to Broadway, winning two Olivier Awards for crying out loud and being nominated for a Tony along the way. And that's just for her work on the stage. She's also lit up the big screen in movies as diverse as My Left Foot and Harry Potter. And more recently, she's stolen the show in some of the biggest TV programmes of the last decade, winning a BAFTA for her performance in Killing Eve and getting nominated for an Emmy for her role in Fleabag. Fiona Shaw is our guest today, and I cannot bloody wait. It's been a tough old slog, Murph, the research for this one. i got to say, poof. Sitting down, just watching a whole series of amazing movies and TV shows that Fiona has been involved in. It's, someone's got to do it, as they say. Someone, I know. and you don't want to you, do, you don't want to pawn that one off on the research team either. On you of know? course, of course, they've got enough on their plate. Yeah, you got to put <laughs> put the hard work in yourself. You know, a leader has to lead in a situation like that. <laughs> exactly. The one I mentioned, the last one I mentioned, their Fleabag. It's just one of the funniest programs I've ever seen. Fiona knocks it out of the park as the main character's therapist in there, a role that was written especially for her by the show's creator, Phoebe Waller-Bridge, who also created Killing Eve, Karen. Uh, and, you know, given how fractured the TV landscape can sometimes be these days, some shows can pass you by, you know, but then there are shows that entered the sort of cultural lexicon of the time, and Killing Eve and Fleabag are legitimately mega shows. Mm. Phoebe Waller-Bridge was the creator of Fleabag, as you said there, and the first series of Killing Eve. And she says the funeral show is her muse. She first saw her acting in a play on the West End when she was 16 and said, it left an indelible mark on my soul and said a standard for performance I've accepted will remain unmatched yet always strived for. Which is... Which is pretty cool, right? Right, yeah. Well, that is extremely cool. I like that. Fiona plays a high-ranking MI6 operative in Killing Eve. And I think at this point, we need a high-level intelligence operation to work out your methods, Murph, for choosing our greatest non-sports person, sports person. The controversy continues. I could have been a contender. I could have been somebody. Yeah, so and we'll get to the criticism in a moment, but at the halfway stage, Nick Hornby is the outright leader in our hunt for Ireland's greatest non-sports person, sports person of 2022. He has 83 points, and all he had to do to get him was write seminal football book Fever Pitch and score the greatest <laughs> goal in the history of five-a-side soccer. He understood the assignment, as they yeah. say, which is to say that he re- realised that to score big on this show, I'll need your all-time sporting highlight, then I'll pick an athlete that I feel most closely resembles you and your sporting achievement, and then... I'll present you with a score out of 100. I am, as you say, being pilloried again by the keyboard warriors online. Being called a Tory in disguise by Conor Leeson for giving Mick Lynch only 77 (laughs) points last week. But let's be honest, this isn't a popularity contest. The man's sporting achievements were humble. So Fiona Shaw is our guest today, and she comes in with a big reputation. Has she the gumption to knock off 
previous treaders of the boards on this show, such as Gabriel Byrne, who once met Muhammad Ali at an Oscars after party, which was good mm. enough for 75 points. Tom Von Lawler, who had a letter about John Aldridge printed in Shoot magazine and scored 83 points on the back of that. Or indeed her good buddy, the Irish artist and non-parai, Dorothy Cross, who has scored more points, 88, in this competition than anyone else in the history of the world. That seems like a big ask. And yet that is what we are asking of her this afternoon. Fiona Shaw is the next contestant to stake her claim to the title. If you have any more abuse that you want to send Murph's way after this one, please tweet at Second Captains. Or if you really want to go deep on the criticism, email it to editor at secondcaptains.com. The great Fiona Shaw coming up on Second Captain Saturday right after we play something from a brilliant Australian musician who you may have seen rip it up at Glastonbury this year. Here's Courtney Barnett. Paramedic thinks I'm clever because I play guitar. I think she's clever because she stops people dying. Is a hell of a lyric in that avant-gardener tune from Courtney Barnett, your first song of the afternoon on Second Captain Saturday. Now, whether it's on stage or on the big or small screen, our guest today is one of Ireland's greatest and most internationally acclaimed actors. Born and raised in Cork, she moved to London, made her name in theatre, starring in landmark productions like the Greek tragedy Medea, as well as playing the King of England in Shakespeare's Richard II. She's part of Harry Potter history, soon to become part of Star Wars lore with her latest TV series Andor, which is on the way next month. My Left Foot, The Butcher Boy, Fleabag, a BAFTA award-winning performance in Killing Eve. Where do I stop with this? We could spend the full hour just doing the intro. Fiona Shaw, thank you so much for chatting to us today. I'm looking forward to it. (laughs) All those memories. Yeah, I I believe, first things first, you are friends with a previous champion of the greatest non-sports person, sports person here. I'm a friend of Dorothy Cross. And I know Dorothy since I was a child. She lived up the road, you know. We lived about 300 yards away from each other. But uh, (laughs) she was a phenomenal sport. I mean, I remember her going to school, you know, every morning. She would be going down to train as a swimmer. I was not doing that. 
Well, we should say that uh, Dorothy has our joint highest total ever. <laughs> uh, she nearly, she nearly qualified, qualified for the, for the Olympics. Olympics, didn't she? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> this is reasonably intimidating stuff, you know. Um, between friends, you know, it's important, I think, that there shouldn't be any sort of uh, real competitive fire there, competitive edge. Although I should say, Dorothy says that you have a serious rep here. You were a winner, in her words. That's, that's how she described you. So we'll grill you about your tennis career perhaps later on. Yeah, I mean, I'm very glad she thinks that. But I think, um, you know, she and I worked together on um, uh, an opera called uh, Riders of the Sea. And it was my first opera and it was set in the West of Ireland. I thought Dorothy would design it brilliantly. So it was more than design, sort of collaborate with me on it. And uh, I think we had a fantastic experience on that because we both were at another stage of our lives, not sporting, but there's an element of sport in making things. You know, creativity is a kind of sport. You're either good at it or bad at it on a certain day. That's, you know, that's how you, it's very like, it's a Wimbledon final every day. Just on the, on the swimming, and we'll talk tennis later on, but I believe you were out for a swim with your mum just the other day? I was. We went to Cuskini in Cove and uh, my friend Catherine and I took mum into the sea and she was like, I was going to say a gazelle, but that wouldn't be the right. A mermaid would be better. She was a mermaid. Uh, within a second, she said, I'm down, I'm down. And she was swimming away. She, she really enjoyed it. She's in her 90s, if we can. She's 96, yeah. 96 yeah. and not a bother yeah. in the water. No, not a bother. Oh, she really loves it. She so says it. I think it reminds her of her childhood. And I think, mm-hmm. you know. There was time lost during COVID and you think you're going to go back to a pre-COVID time. We all feel that, I think, that, you know, it'll all be the same. And it really isn't. And yeah. uh, I suppose at 96, you know, she left one bit of her life at 93 and a half and now she finds herself 96. <laughs> uh, Can you take us back then to your, your childhood? Were the arts a big deal even then? Um, I, I mean, the arts, you know, it, you, you had to really make the arts in Cork because there was no system as there was, you know, three decades later as there is now. And, um, you know, my mother used to hold musical evenings, a thing that I think went out in about 1890, but she still has them. <laughs> She's going to have one next month. Oh, well. Um, and if we're lucky, we'll be invited. And everybody performs something. You know, somebody plays a saxophone or she plays the piano and sings. And uh, we used to play instruments. So, you know, there was a bit of performing at home also for, you know, aunts and uncles and grannies and that kind of thing. And my mother was very interested in singing and in the arts. You know, my father's very interested in history. Uh, he was always reading books about Napoleon, <laughs> the most arbitrary person to be reading books about. Um, yeah, you didn't lick it off a stone, as they say. No, I didn't lick it off a stone. No. The, uh, your dad was also a rugby player, we understand. He was. He was he was given a trial for Ireland actually way back wow. in the forties, but he was I think he was too gentle or wanted to do some exams or something more important. So he, he never played for Ireland, but he was a very, very good rugby player. Yeah. Played for Munster, apparently, which is good going. He did, and he, he you know, he he was a winger and he could run like mad. Was he one of those sports people that wore that kind of sporting achievement lightly? Was it something that he talked about a lot or did he kind of get misty eyed when talking about rugby around the house? On the contrary, he was really against rugby. I think he was a doctor. And I think having seen so many terrible accidents of, of uh, as rugby got better trained and fellows became stronger at it, he also saw the accidents and he thought it was a very dangerous sport. So he was very against it. But my brothers played, you know, they all played at school, um, particularly my youngest brother. He was mad about rugby. And so there was no stopping him. So there was a lot of talk about rugby, but at the school level, not my father's memories of it. He was, he was all for downing it. 
You ended up going to RADA, Fiona, the Royal Academy of Dramatic Art in London, which is about as prestigious as it gets. But is it right that you actually had to battle your way there? You had to battle your father a little bit for your right to go there. Yes. I mean, all this seems a very long time ago now. My <laughs> father was ultimately very, very supportive of my career once it started. But I think he, you know, Ireland in the 70s, um, um, I don't know whether you read Fintan O'Toole's wonderful book of We Don't Know oh, Ourselves. I have. It's yeah, just a fantastic. absolutely amazing, isn't it? Yeah, I yeah. read it. My heart was thumping as I read it. <laughs> Is that what was going on when I was growing up? Oh, my God. <laughs> I'm surprised we met it as far as we did, to be honest. I'm surprised we're still here after we having read that book. But <laughs> yeah. I think it was a superb book about mm. saying how vulnerable Ireland had been in the 60s when I was a tiny person and in the 70s. And the population was so small that I think there was a real feeling, um, I mean, consciously or unconsciously in families, that we all should do sensible things and maybe go forward as a country. I'm sure. And, and I don't think acting was the thing that was going to make him... <laughs> the country uh, go forward. I don't think there's anything as grand as that. I just think he thought it was a very unreliable source of income and he's not wrong there. What I loved about that story was that that he was quite intent that you go and get a degree first and then you go to RADA. So you decided on the rock solid fallback of a degree in English and philosophy, which I absolutely adore. So. Yes, the highly paid courses of philosophy <laughs> yeah. and uh, in English subsidiary. I, I love philosophy. And in the end, like all these decisions, they all came back not to haunt, but to help. And I was really glad I'd done philosophy because when it came to the history of drama or or just, just a play, I knew something about the nature of thought in that period of whatever the play was, you know, whether it was the 18th century or the 19th century. So it really did help. Yeah, it helped. You could see the way in which people thought and why they thought the way they thought, without uh, which just gave you a sort of a leg up onto the horse of the play. What about Rada then when you got there, Fiona? Was it a little bit of a culture shock for you? I arrived wearing a tweed skirt that I had got in Cassius and Cork, now Brown Thomas's. And I wore a pull neck that was, wasn't Argyle, it was called something like Shetland. Remember, there was a Shetland sweater. And it had uh, very scratchy, but we all loved Shetland <laughs> sweaters. And I called everybody Mr. and Mrs. And I got to Rada and everybody was a punk. Everyone was a punk. <laughs> and they had been very strict about what you wore. You had to wear a certain kind of dress, A-line dress that was in the perspectives. Couldn't find such an A-line dress, black dress. So I made one. I'd never made a dress in my life. Well, it's the wonkiest thing ever, but I had made it. Of course, nobody was taking those things seriously when I got there. So I was terribly behind in Rada for the first year. I I was the idiot calling everybody Mr. and Mrs. And I was uh, in my tweeds and I was, you know, never going to become a punk. In fact, when I left, the wonderful principal of Rada, Hugh Crutwell, he said, you know, when you first came, you smelt of libraries. <laughs> <laughs> smelt of libraries? Smelt of the UCC library, but it was smell of libraries. Well. <laughs> I think I was slightly stooped from reading books, you know. Uh, yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, slightly hunched and slightly uh, un- unaligned. So I think they had their work cut out over the next, you know, nearly three years trying to stretch me out but I was really glad I'd done that course in fact everybody should do that course because you do come out more aligned with yourself by the end of it what do you mean that what do you mean by that aligned with yourself well if somebody's working uh, the really good thing about writing was there were very few students so you're given a lot of one-to-one training so you have one-to-one singing you have one-to-one voice you have one-to-one speech you have one-to-one body work you have one-to-one Alexander taking and nobody had taken a tack of notice of us, you know, all our teenage years and into university. And suddenly you're being twisted and prodded and helped and assessed. And, you know, you just improve. Every, you, what you really do is you make your mind and your body meet. 
And in Ireland, that really needed to happen because people's bodies were completely different to their minds. Yeah, that's such a beautiful turn of phrase. What were the people like that you've described them as kind of they were they were all kind of punks but did you feel like they were miles more confident than you were happier in their own skin i suppose if for want of a better phrase than you were when you first walked in the door yeah well they were i mean they were um you know they had had they'd all been to i mean the lucky ones had all been to the royal shakespeare company and seen the best actors in the country performing the best plays ever written we in Ireland had very little Shakespeare, um, as John Montague, our teacher, told us. You know, he said because at the time of Shakespeare, um, Raleigh and his pals were kind of, you know, stabbing pregnant women in Ireland and hanging priests. So we had a kind of subconscious sight rejection of Shakespeare, understandably. Mm. And all of that is politically true, but it just, but in the language, the development of the language, a bit like the internet, it's the most important uh, writer because you learn more about how the language is structured through Shakespeare. So the key is to is to re-attack Shakespeare and get it. So um yeah, I was way well behind. I mean they'd all done that or they or they watched our television, which we didn't do. You know, we had RT one, I think is all we had in <laughs> Cork. And uh, maybe two latterly and anyway we weren't allowed to watch it. Uh so we weren't <laughs> really um I wasn't really au fait with anything. And a lot of the plays were English of course. And so, you know, if you're suddenly having to play some Cotney cleaner. It was quite hard for me from court to do that. So I floundered. And then yeah. in the fifth term, we got to the 18th century and we did a play called Laval, the Miser by Moliere. And it was all about people lying and cheating. And suddenly I understood where I was. <laughs> I, I was brought up in the 18th century, not because they're lying and cheating, but because I understood the the language of politeness uh, was suddenly something that I really understood in a completely different way from Cork. So I that really, um, I suddenly got it. I thought, I got this, yeah. You mentioned Shakespeare there. And a number of years later in the 90s, you played a really interesting role, Richard II, which uh, I believe you're the first woman to play the role in the West End. And it's not just a woman playing a man's role. Like you're playing the King of England in a Shakespearean, in a Shakespearean play. What was that experience like for you? It was very hard, actually. I, I'd done a lot of Shakespeare. I played, I played Rosalind as you like it, and I'd done Beatrice and Portia and all the gorgeous heroines who are usually coming of age. So it was a very, very lovely experience. The previous five or six years, where I sort of was able to develop and also, in a way, rediscover myself uh, like a new. I sort of had a second adolescence by becoming an actor because I was able to really, I mean, Catherine the Shrew is such an interesting person who will not do what she's told. And it's because she wants to be named properly. I mean, there's some wonderful, they're wonderful characters. You get to stretch your mind to a lovely access. So by the time it came to uh, Richard II, a lot of people wanted me to play Hamlet. And I really thought Hamlet was a play about a boy with his mother. And I thought many anybody boyish or boy would play that better than me. But Richard II is slightly about a god or a man who thinks he's a person who thinks he's a god. And he's not very male. He's very female. And so I didn't have to worry about becoming effeminate. You just, I just had to play the person. Um, but the other really good part of the play is that Richard says we're going to Ireland and we're going to fight those woolly-headed kerns. And I loved all that thing, how awful the Irish were. And then he goes to, he comes back from Ireland and lands and finds that his cousin has taken over the country. So it's a, you know, I wish, wish, wish I have any regret is that we could have taken it to Ireland. But at that time, there was no money to do that. 
obviously there were some men who reacted in um, perhaps predictable fashion at the idea that uh, a woman would play Richard II. Uh, the London Independent wrote, a female Richard II is the sort of thing you might expect to see at the end of term in a boarding school, but there is no history of the part being played by a woman professionally. It is gimmick casting. Did you enjoy rebelling and annoying these types of people at that time? It certainly wasn't gimmick casting. Actually, it, it was really an experiment to see if you could break through the, the wall and allow... Um, in brief, Richard II is a poem. It has it begins at the top and it never stops. It never breaks. Uh, it never has pauses. It doesn't have anything that is out of rhythm. Most Shakespeare plays, the rhythm always jars. Somebody suddenly speaks prose or somebody can't finish a sentence. In Richard II, it's very ordered, like a sort of book of hours. So it's a poem. You know, down, down I come like blistering fire thin. I mean, it's very high language. So it really doesn't matter who speaks it because none of them are real. But the feeling in it, and I think the feeling in England at the time, is that Richard II held some of the history of England. But Shakespeare wasn't interested in the history of England. He was trying to explore what happens if a king resigns. And in fact, Elizabeth I banned the deposition scene where you know, Richard takes, I give this heavy weight from off my head. He takes the crown off and gives it to his cousin. I mean, that was sacrilegious. So he was much more interested in the disruptive nature of the play. But it's amazing how the British theatre is often quite conservative and um, thinks, you know, that's one of our history plays. We've got to be <laughs> celebratory. I mean, look at Falstaff, you know, who's so uh, revered in England and actually is a completely selfish, sadistic, unreliable person, a bit like certain prime ministers who you might have. <laughs> um, so it's, uh, you know, that these things are there for interpretation as they go on being, which is great. You did say it was difficult at the start, though. Uh, difficult in terms of that blowback that you got at the time. Is that what was difficult? No, about? I found it very hard to play. I had a wonderful, gotcha. wonderful man played Bolingbroke with uh, David Threlfall, who you may know from Shame. Mm. And um, I found it hard to play because... He kept saying, well, of course, probably we played football together when we were young. You know, we were... I thought, well, David, that's your memory of being young. Mine is not. You know, that the memory I realized, I learned something about acting, that actually acting is based in your childhood memory. In the end, as, as time drifts by and, and the green hills become bluer and bluer in the memory bank, you are actually always standing on who you were. And in Richard II, I couldn't stand on who I was. And I, so I always felt slightly wrong. That experimentation you talk about there, is that still around in theatre to the same extent? Has it waned at all in the years since? Well, it waned very quickly after our experiment. I mean, things went absolutely back to, you know, more 1940s productions. I mean, you know, Ariane Mnuchin had done Richard II in Paris with, you know, very happily the French. We took it to Paris, actually. It was a huge hit in Paris and in Germany because the French, of course, had chopped their king's heads off. So their relationship to the play about chopping a king's head off is a completely <laughs> different to England, which lives in terror of chopping a king's head off because they did it once and they regret it. So, mm. you know, republics come out of chopping king's heads off. But in terms of, <laughs> of dramatic style, a lot of productions, I think, were quite retrograde. Um, I think... All national theatre should be experimenting. Unless the form moves forward, the theatre gets stuck. I mean, the same in movies. You know, if if we're watching the same movies we're watching in the 60s, it's not that the content is any better, but the way in which we see things is being informed by the speed at which our lives are going in a world that is changing. And you have to absorb all of that when you make a piece of theatre. Why has it been stuck then, do you think? Why has it not kept pace with those changes? Well, it's had a huge kick lately. I think Black Lives Matter is the most fantastic wake-up call to a theatre that 
was not reflecting the experience of people in a country. I'm talking about the island of of uh, Britain in that, um, you know, huge people's stories were not being told. And the job of the theatre is to tell the stories. I think in Ireland, too, now, finally, the national theatres are taking on the different families or or races who who inhabit that island and i think all all institutions can become just a bit ossified and decide what they are you know would you be tempted fiona to be part of that evolution yourself as in go back to acting on stage or better yet directing on stage i know i know you're doing operas but directing theater i'd love to direct the theater but it you know it's totally absorbing and uh all to do with diaries. It's to do with saying, <laughs> I will stop work next February for six months. You know, I, I just find that very hard to say now because you have to design the thing a year in advance, really. You've got to keep designing it and you've got to be thinking about it all the time. So it's, it's about developing work with people who you know or who themselves are developing. And it's a very exciting way of being. In fact, because I'm no longer in the theatre in the same way, I'm, I'm I. It's not that I miss it, but I do realise how totally absorbing it was, you know. Well, listen, after the break, we're going to dig down into your career today, which is largely focused on really exciting film and television projects, Fiona. And we'll see if your your bona fides are strong enough to knock Nick Hornby off the top spot of the leaderboard on Second Captain Saturday. Second Captains on RTE Radio 1, sponsored by Audi Ireland. Future is an attitude. Second captain, first captain, whatever. This is Second Captain Saturday with Owen McDevitt and Kieran Murphy. We're chatting to one of Ireland's greatest actors of stage and screen, Fiona Shaw, who's been a sensational guest already. Fiona, we've been speaking about the need for experimentation in theatre. What about TV? Is that where a lot of the best writing is now? You've been in absolutely amazing shows like Killing Eve and Fleabag in recent years, for example. Yeah, I mean, I think television is going through a sort of rocket of uh, a renaissance now. So everything you see is slightly more advanced than the thing you have seen. I think it's fabulous. And so Phoebe Waller-Bridge, who wrote Fleabag and the first uh, series of Killing Eve, her wit is so brilliantly uncomfortable. Uh, I mean, I love being Killing Eve because uh, I used to read the pages and not know whether it was funny or not. And I think that is really the best humour <laughs> of all. I mean, that's a real, real skill and personality and all sorts of things. It's such an interesting thing that we've all seen over the last 15 or 20 years. That TV was once the place where movie actors were relegated to. Now it's seen as more and more the place where stuff like character development or, you know, writing with real richness and depth exists instead of movies. And that's just such a huge change that we've seen over the last kind of two decades or less even. It's because like a Dickens novel, you know, the long form means you can meet the people again and again and you get to know a different side of them every week or different scenes. In a movie, the person has become entirely formed because there's only an hour and a half or two hours, whatever the length of the movie is, in which to tell that story. However, movies are really movies. They're really about the camera. And I think television is about language, which is, in a way, going back to Shakespeare. I mean, it's all about language. They have this luxurious form of being able to play long scenes or play many scenes. So nobody is what they seem. You know, it is an art form, really, because it is much bigger than the some of its parts. You're also going to be stepping into the Star Wars Well, you have stepped in, but we'll be seeing the results of this. You're involved in a TV series Andor coming out next month. How much can you tell us about this, Fiona? It's, I mean, obviously there are huge fans uh, for the Star Wars sort of world and 
we're part of a prequel. So it's before, you know, any of you who were not alive probably when the first Star Wars came out, which I was in 1979 or was in America. It was fantastic. It sort of blew all our minds. But this is a prequel. So there's no, I mean, there is lots of aesthetic connections between that and what happened later in the Star Wars we all know. But it was very interesting, but Star Wars in making it, the design teams, to go back to what you're saying about television, was so astonishing that they built a planet. Um, I think I'm allowed to say that. Uh, they built many planets, I think, but they built a planet that I was on and it was beautifully made. And every gully, every gutter was all sculpted in the style of this planet. And I lived in a house that had the most amazing furniture and retroness about the retroness in outer space. So everything had been thought about and invented. And it was during the height of the pandemic. But I think that production would be astonishing. I'm a Star Wars fan in that I've seen all the movies, but I know that the real fans, the, the fans who would look down their noses at me can get pretty intense. And I did see one article about an appearance of yours on the one show on, on BBC One from before you started shooting, which I thought was absolutely hilarious. So your quote about the series was as follows. It's an Andor series and it's about people called Andor, of which I am one. And the main part, of course, is the marvellous Mexican actor and he plays the hero who runs around, who is Diego Luna. It's set well before the Star Wars series, so it's a prequel to Star Wars. And then this fan website, the reaction on the website was, fans and groups have been picking apart her remarks ever since. Most agree that they are at best masterfully ambiguous or at worst confusing non-fan utterances. Shaw's delightfully goofy way of describing her role in the show could potentially be a masterclass in obfuscation under the guise of bewilderment. So, so was all that a masterclass in obfuscation under the guise of bewilderment? Well, I do know what I'm playing yeah. in the show. <laughs> and I think it's the relationship to other characters that we're, we're you know, we're, it, look, none yeah. of this is to deprive the fans of their pleasure, but it's just about at what time the pleasure is delivered. I don't think looking up under the curtain, you know, before the show starts, yeah. necessarily going to tell you anything about the piece. And I've recently done a wonderful, wonderful thing that will be coming out next year called The Anansi Boys by Neil Gaiman. But we're often asked to go and speak to a camera about our experience playing it. And you're in the costume and you think, now, isn't our job to not be, uh, to be <laughs> yeah. the characters, not to be ourselves? And if you're too near yourself, then you're obviously failing to be a character. If you're very far away, you're sort of fudging it by being in your costume and yet speaking. It just reminds me of feeding the animals at the end of the circus. It just seems torturous <laughs> and unnecessary. Well, you have been involved with the intense fandom before and very famous franchise. I'm thinking here of Harry Potter, uh, your role as Aunt Petunia Dursley. How did people... I guess kids, but maybe adults as well, react to you after you played that role? Well, you know, it's a long time ago, but it goes on and on. I mean, I, I can't go down the street without Harry Potter people coming. I'm surprised that they still recognise me. I'm hoping I'm a bit more cool than Mrs. Dursley, but apparently not. <laughs> so, uh, no, it goes on. And of course, generations of people have seen Harry Potter. And of course, they've seen him multiple times. My dad used to go up to the gate where his, to get his car and cars would slow down. And he discovered subsequently that people were slowing down saying Harry Potter's grandfather lives <laughs> in there. <laughs> something about the, the human mind between the age of seven and 12, that they have no uh, dis, you know, distinction between what is fact and the fiction and fact are the same thing. Fiona, it's time to talk sport. 
Tell us about this tennis career of yours, please. Well, we, you know, we we lived in Cork, but we had originally come from Cove and there's a gorgeous tennis club in Cove, the Rushbrook Tennis Club. And in the summer, from about June to September, we would stay in Cove around the back of the island and we would play tennis every day. And the tennis club was a sort of strange, wonderful place left over probably from the Second World War. And there were a lot of ex-naval people from uh, England. So it was quite a serious tennis club. There were a lot of old biddies playing bridge going, no bid. Uh, a lot of people playing croquet. So it was a really old fashioned sort of place. But for the young, it was a marvellous pile of tennis courts, beautifully looked after. Um, you could have tenora at the end of your game. <laughs> I don't think they make tenora, but I love tenora. Um, so we used to play in that way. And then we got, you know, my brother John and I, we got very interested. And then we would watch, you know, people like Rod Laver. These are now, you know, I saw him recently. He's kind of barely walking. Um, and then later, when we got to Cork, I was trained by a man called Michael Hickey, who had been on the Davis Cup, and he used to train me out in Douglas Tennis Club. So I used to cycle out to Douglas and be trained. And then you get very involved. But, you know, this was the tennis of the wooden racket. And I can't believe I'm saying that, because as I gave up tennis, it was beginning to be the metal round big-headed racket. And the style looked so ugly, the new style, compared to the beautiful flowing shots. And there was, of course, in tennis, an element of sportsmanship, which is different to gamesmanship, which was that, you know, you always said, well done, you know, things like that when somebody beat the hell out of you. And uh, mm. well done, and thank you, and a lot of shaking hands and... You know, and after you, and after you, after you. So it was a very polite sport, but it was also a brilliant sport for focus. I mean, I think it was a fantastic sport for, it's both a team sport if you play doubles and also a solo sport. And you can always judge your own day by how fit you are, by how focused you are. And that's still the case, that the first serve is the way of judging where you are. And if you're aligned or you're you're concentrating correctly. You can't concentrate by overstressing. You just have to be. And the ball goes in at a gorgeous angle and, you know, glides off the rack of the other person. Then you're onto a winner and confidence grows during the match. So it's a very, very enjoyable sport on all sorts of levels. Are there any comparisons between tennis and acting or am I stretching things a little there? No, you're absolutely bang on. I, I think that when you know, when you go on to a play, I mean, I played sort of just, for instance, Mother Courage. When you land on the stage with a huge volume and you're on a cart and you've got sons who are dragging the cart, you have got to wrangle the audience in the first minute. First, certainly first two minutes, but the first minute, really. And the energy needed for that is all about preparation. You have to land on the stage as if you've been in that match all the time. You can't just think, oh, I think we'll start now. Oh, oh, I'm, you know, I'm shaking off cobwebs and I'm beginning to. You have to be match fit at that moment. And a lot of it is about just clearing your mind, not allowing anything else to happen in the day. I mean, that way acting has eaten my life. I, you know, from about 11 in the morning, you think about the evening, not in a huge way, but you couldn't have anything disruptive in the afternoon. You just have to be in a flow and go in. And so if you don't wrangle the audience, you've lost them for the evening. If you wrangle them, you're stealing their thoughts and their things of thoughts of shopping or how they're not getting on with their husband or how annoying their children are being. You mm -hmm. have to get rid of all of those thoughts out of their heads and replace it with your much more interesting story. And tennis is very like that. You're also in tennis, you're also playing this sport where 
everything is sort of repeatable, but not, if you know what I mean. You're, it's, it's, yes. Each shot is vaguely similar to the last, but not exactly the same, which I guess might be quite similar to acting it on is, stage. To playing a very good scene with somebody is that every night the scene is different because the way in which the person has inflected a line will affect the return of your line if you're listening. And in the end, acting is only listening. Very few people do it really well. Listen to what the other person says. Really listen. Not listen. Don't act like you're listening. Listen. And then your body will sort of react. And the same in tennis, that every shot, you're practicing these umpteen shots. And the reason why we think the miraculous tennis players, like watching Wimbledon this year, that they can play any shot is because they've practiced every possible combination shot many, many times. But the combination of the map of, of the match is completely different. And it's the same with acting. So every night the show is entirely different. Mm-hmm. But I don't think I had killer instinct. And I think you do need that. You need to want to win. I loved playing. And I'm the same with playing cards or anything. I really don't mind not winning. However, on the stage, I really want the evening to be won by us, the group on the stage, not by the audience. And to win, you have to really... You have to concentrate, you have to, you know, as I said, empty your mind of everything so that your entire being is focused on that. And I think maybe I learned that later than I my tennis career. So mm. I may flounder on this on this ranking. Now that's okay. It's really interesting though that, that you describe it almost like a match when you're on stage with you and the audience. So what does it look like? I, I can picture what it looks like when the actors win. What does it look like when the audience win? Sometimes if somebody comes on, you know, I'm saying never me, of course, but if somebody comes on Mm -hmm. and they're under par, you can feel that the audience have lost that moment. If they lose that moment, you've got to work very hard to get them back if they lose their concentration. They they behave as one. They don't think, you know, people always say, oh, but the audience didn't notice. The audience notice everything. They don't notice why they have just wondered about their shopping again. It means that they're minds aren't being held with the right level of energy, which is about 10 times the energy of conversation. It doesn't have to be 10 times louder or more intense, but 10 times more focused than ordinary conversation. And because otherwise, actually, as you know, when you're having dinner with a friend or a drink with a friend, it's the most interesting thing in the world because the two of you are entirely present having that conversation. And is it possible to turn that moment around if you're there, if you realise... I've lost the audience because I presume then you can be tempted to overdo whatever the next part is. So how do you win it back? I speak. Well, that's the other thing that's going on very much like in tennis is that you are standing on the stage thinking we've got to get them back. They've not usually is that they've lost that point and that's going to be important late. I mean, that, that point, not the game point. Tennis point yeah. <laughs> lost a, a story point that hasn't been mm. clear. Everything. A really good play is every single beat is building towards the denouement. So if you've missed that point, you've got to get it in. Either try and find a way that in the next sentence or 10 sentences ahead, you can hit it harder so you can remind them of something that they may not have completely got. Or you want to kill the person who's done that, who's lost the point. <laughs> and, or you speed up. And in my case, I always speak very quickly anyway. I mean, as you may, be, you may be experiencing. But I speak very quickly, which I think was very good for Shakespeare rather than too slow. So you you have to try and think. And then sometimes in the first half, you come off of the interval and very like changing sides in a tense. You just go, God, we've got to get. And the second half, you can just all of you meet again, like a group, like a football team and say, we've got to, you know, and so and people come on with a different energy. And it is all I mean, it's invisible stuff, energy, but it's certainly 
the stuff that makes things happen. And sometimes you can regain the entire evening and make it a really good evening. It's never luck. And as somebody said, Jeremy McEwen, who used to say to me, it's never the audience's fault. <laughs> okay, so our information from Dorothy Cross leads us to believe that you have some real unfulfilled sporting talent knocking around there. Tell us about the highlight of your tennis career. And was there a moment when you had to choose between a career in tennis and a career in the arts? <laughs> <laughs> I had a very my tennis career was dreadful. I mean, I I I was such a show off that if I ever got anywhere <laughs> in tennis, I would suddenly people would come and watch the match. You know, as you get near the end of a tournament, and I once played with the wonderful Kathy Ryle, who was on the Irish team. I mean, this this is way back in the seventies, and we got to a final in Waterford or something. And of course, there were thousands of people looking, and I just came into my own verbally, but not necessarily tennis-wise. <laughs> I don't think she'd ever lost, lost a match in her life, but I managed to be able to lose it for her. So I'm, I'm sorry, what do you mean by performing? What, how were you performing rather than just playing your You know, your I'd make some funny shot and then I'd you know, collapse on the ground or something. <laughs> I mean, I, I'm not like that now. I'm just saying that, you know, as a ebullient 17-year-old. <laughs> of course, yeah. Now, I don't want you to be too humble about this as well, though. You obviously, If you're even playing a doubles match with this player who went on to play for Ireland, you were obviously, and as we've heard from a previous guest, you, you must have been decent enough. Were you, uh, would you describe yourself as like a Serena Williams, Rafa Nadal power player or more a Roger Federer stylist? <laughs> I mean, that generation came obviously a thousand years after me, but they, they're, they're something else. I mean, the speed at which, you know, there was a time where you couldn't watch men's tennis. It was too fast. Now you can't watch women's tennis is so fast. I mean, the, where, whereas I think, as I say, we, we were much more yeah, no, I don't think I'm a Federer. I don't think I'm certainly not a Serena Williams. Um, I was pretty good. I mean, I was pretty good. My backhand was good and I was fast and I was fit, you know. Are you playing any tennis these days? I played about a month ago with a friend of mine and I was shocked. You know, my opponent was younger than me. Um, but when she shot the ball across the stage, I used to be able to run over and get that ball. But I found myself already thinking, I want to have a lie down. You know, I don't even want to do it. <laughs> Mm-hmm. Uh, I had all the body. I thought it'll all come back. It's all in the mind, but it really isn't. It's all in the <laughs> knees. <laughs> I hope you didn't take up tennis again just to curry favour with Murph here, who's going to be ranking your sporting life in a moment. Oh my God, yeah. No, I'm, I was very good. <laughs> <laughs> but you, that backhand was a being unleashed left, right, centre. Yes, 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 yes. I don't think I ever won a tournament. That's fine. You've given us such a brilliant explanation of the similarities between acting and tennis that Murph might just disregard your your failure to close out those tennis tournaments back in the day. Kieran, can you please now rank this sporting life of Fiona Shaw? You don't understand. I could have had class. You don't have stars in this game, Mrs. Weaver. What do you have then? People like me. I could have been a contender. I could have been somebody. Okay, Fiona, we have reached the stage in the show where I'm forced with grim determination to assess your all-time sporting highlight. Pick an athlete that I feel most closely resembles you and your sporting achievements and then present you with a score out of 100 to discover if you can be crowned our top non-sports person sports person for 2022. At the halfway stage in this year's competition, Nick Hornby is top of the tree with 83 points. And in truth, he has thus far seldom been troubled. But you've given me a lot of food for thought here. Between your father's rugby career with Munster and your friendship slash rivalry with bona fide second captain's great Dorothy Cross, you present a very strong case. Well, can, I, can I just describe for our listeners the uh, the visuals here? Because I've never <laughs> seen anyone getting as excited as Fiona is at the moment. This is this is big stuff. <laughs> yeah. I, I should say super special bonus points for taking your 96-year-old mum out swimming last yes, week. That's just, yes. it is utterly beautiful. The doubles final 
with Cathy Roll when you succumb to more the, <laughs> the more theatrical angels of your nature and showboated your way to a sickening defeat. Nevertheless, shows a peerless dedication to the art of entertainment, which of course has served you well in later life. In fact, your shameful carry-on in Watford that day reminds me of nothing more than watching Henri Leconte charm the Wimbledon crowds all the way to a humiliating fourth-round defeat to an unknown Romanian qualifier on court number one at Wimbledon in the, in the mid-90s. But is making the people happy a reason to deduct points? I actually don't think so. In fact, having taken all of this into account, I find it very hard to find too much fault at all here. It's all good enough, Owen and Fiona. For 85 points for a new season leader, you didn't beat Dorothy Cross, but then again, no one ever will. So Fiona Shaw, it has been a pleasure. This has been your sporting life. Fiona, you've got to be happy with that. I am more than happy with that because I think what you're saying is that my retrospective sport, sport career would have been better if I'd learned what I learned later, earlier. And you're, you're yeah. <laughs> I think that's it in a nutshell. Fiona, it's been so much fun. Listen, thank you so much. A round of applause, please, for our new leader on the on the second captain's greatest sports person, sports person, Fiona Shaw. Thank you. Thank you. Victoria by the fall is your second and final tune of the day on Second Captain Saturday. What a moment we've all just witnessed. History has been made before our very ears. Fiona Shaw has laid waste to the opposition and jumped straight to top spot on the Second Captain's non-sports person, sports person leaderboard. And I do think she deserved it for her enthusiasm alone, where she really was punching the air in delight with every point you added. She's she's up there to be shot at now, on uh, Many people don't have the self-assurance to be an effective front runner, But I just think <laughs> there's something about Fiona that tells me she's going to thrive up there. I wouldn't want to be the next person in line, quite frankly. I really, really love that chat. What a sickener for Richard II, by the way. Poor chap mm. takes one little trip across the Irish Sea to check on his was woolly-headed kerns. Is that what Fiona said? Yes, I That's, believe so, yeah. He gets back on English soil. Bang, your cousin has taken your crown. Sorry, mate. That's it. It's mm. got to be tough to take for him. Shout out also for Richard III, Murph, a man who played a pivotal role in the biggest fairy tale story of the 30-year history of the Premier League. You'd have to say Richard III didn't exactly have it easy either. You know, I mean, if if you're looking at the Richards, neither of them really were blessed with good fortune, but his remains were found in a car park in Leicester. This is Richard III now. And from that moment, it seemed that things were destined to fall into place for that city's football team. He'd only just been reinterred in Leicester Cathedral in 2015 when the Leicester City football team took the Premier League by storm and won the title despite starting the 2015-16 season as 5,000 to 1 outsiders. Otherwise, <laughs> rational minds have drawn a parallel between the two events. One a city discovers the body of one of England's most notorious kings, which obviously means 
two local football team wins Premier League. Simple, really. All the city of Leicester needed was to be told they hadn't just thrown their erstwhile king's body in the river like a pack of animals back in 1485, <laughs> and their self-confidence went through the roof. It's a heartwarming uh, tale. It really is. Apart perfect. from the throwing the body in the river and bring him in a car park. No, that I mean, sort of thing. all's well that ends well for Richard III and yeah. for Leicester City. That's it from us for today. Stay tuned to RT Radio 1 for the latest Doc on 1. If you want to hear more from us during the week, get yourself over to secondcaptains.com. This has been a Second Captains production for RTE. The show was produced by Killian Down. Thanks so much to Johnny Lanagan and Elizabeth Lowergy in RTE. Mark Horgan is a series producer for Second Captains. Thanks, Murph. Thank you, On. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next week. Second cap and first cap and whatever. Second captains on RTE Radio One, sponsored by Audi Ireland. Future is an attitude.